All right, so we're going to be talking about a topic that is uh, getting into the meat and potatoes of psychology. Last time we talked about nature versus nurture, biology versus environmental factors and uh, decisions that you make in your life and influences you have and upbringing that you have and experiences that shape you and so on and so forth. That's what we talked about last time. And basically we know that both of these things basically interact with each other and shape who we are. That means that you have certain... Uh, qualities, strengths, weaknesses, whatever you want to call them, inclinations, abilities. uh, There are all kinds of different uh, terms that we can use to describe what you're born with and um, what environment you find yourself in, what influences you end up encountering shape the way that whatever you were programmed with, so to speak, by your DNA ends up expressing itself. Uh, And that's what we learned about in the first class, which was like a month ago. So you are a product, a combination, what they call in psych terms, they call it an interaction between the biological elements that you were born with and the environmental and behavioral influences that affect you and basically determine the way in which whatever you were born with expresses itself in reality, okay? That's what we talked about last time. We're going to talk about something this time. Like I mentioned, it's a little bit of a, I happen to really like this, some people really don't like this. A name that, uh, uh, that you probably are familiar with, with, which is Sigmund Freud's ideas and Freudian theories of psychology. Okay? I'll tell you, historically speaking... So, yeah, so historically speaking, at a certain time in history, I would say the first half of the 20th century, uh, Freudian psychology was like the, 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 the center of psychology. It was the, it was the basis of everything. Freudian psychology was the dominant theory for decades and Freud and his students were the dominant thinkers about psychology and practitioners of psychology for decades because he made it, I'm going to explain why, because his ideas about how human behavior could be explained and how human personality developed were really revolutionary ideas, Um, revolutionary in the sense that um, they really changed the way people thought about human behavior and human emotion and also about um, psychological disorders. But uh, what, was in, what was incredible was that he showed that many of his ideas really were ideas that we kind of were familiar with deep down inside, even though we might not have realized it. And so his ideas became super popular and practitioners of psychology, according to the Freudian understanding, uh, became the dominant, uh, dominant school of thought in psychology. What happened was that in the 50s and 60s, I'm talking about the 1950s and 1960s, new schools of thought that were American schools of thought primarily, such as behavioral psychology, cognitive psychology, and so on, became much more dominant, became much more popular, and overran Freudian psychology and almost made it to the point that now in America, at least, Freudian psychology is a minority of schools, um, colleges, universities. Hold on just one second. Universities and colleges and, and, and psychologists follow the Freudian approach relative to, uh, the, you know, relative to the predominantly, most of them are in what's called the cognitive behavioral, which we're going to talk about. Yeah, here in Israel, it's very different. Here in Israel, Freudian psychology is still very popular. The books on Freudian psychology are all over the place and psychologists typically use Freudian ideas. That doesn't mean that they're what we call orthodox Freudians because orthodox Freudian psychology is not as popular, but what we might call neo-Freudian or, uh, um, you know, Freudian psychology as interpreted by his students and as, uh, let's say, uh, refined and improved 
by later generations, that became very popular in Europe and in Israel. So in Europe and in Israel, you'll find a lot more Freudian psychology or psychology at least inspired by the Freudian approach as opposed to... Huh? Yeah, they say Freudian... Yeah, yeah. They, they, we're going we're gonna to learn about the other schools of thought too, just that in Israel, Freud still has a lot of influence. In, uh, in, in America, much, much less because they, they like... Uh, cognitive behavioral psychology. Yes. That's his right? name. So what was his main I'm gonna. Oh, I'm gonna get to that. Don't worry. I was just giving you a, a background that you might recognize his name. Okay. What was his main? What were some of his main ideas? Okay. We're not gonna go into all of them. Okay. I'm just gonna mention some of his main ideas, and specifically, we're gonna focus on today one aspect of his thinking that I feel you can see a lot of examples of it in the Torah, so it connects to Torah psychology, and also it's something you can apply to yourself a lot. So we're going to see. What was the main, we could call chidush? What was the main insight of Freud? The main insight of Freud, I would say, if I, you know, if, if I could be in a position to try to define that, is that a lot more of what goes on in your psychological life is unconscious than it is conscious. Meaning, there's a lot more going on inside your mind that you are not aware of than you are aware of. And that, he liked the term, the unconscious. Today, people, you hear them say, subconscious, right? Freud did not like the term subconscious. He didn't like it. And you know why? Because he said subconscious sounds like, the word sub sounds like it's lower. Like subordinate. He said, but really the unconscious is right. It's more powerful than the conscious. So calling it subconscious is wrong, Freud said. So his main, so to speak, hidush was the unconscious processes. That what is going on inside of you a lot of times, psychologically, you're not even aware of it. It's deep down buried inside of you. Now, I don't think that comes as a big surprise to a lot of us when you really think about it. There's a lot of things going on that we don't even realize that are going on and they come out or we become aware of them or we think that other people are not necessarily always aware of what makes, what motivates them and things like that deep down inside. I think we have a sense of that. But this was a really revolutionary idea because up till Freud's time, most people looked at psychological issues as more like medical. Like the people who treated psychological problems were just regular doctors. They weren't necessarily psychologists or psychiatrists like we would say today. They were mostly medical doctors who just looked at the behavior. They said, there's something wrong with your brain. Maybe we need to take part of it. They didn't really know how to do such excellent brain surgery back then. You know, so it didn't really, what they would do, uh, this is a side point, but they would do something called a lobotomy that you might've heard of before, which is basically that they sever they, they basically cut the brain in half almost. They like sever the, uh, you know, one half of the brain from the other. And they were like, wow, people who were so wild and crazy become so calm after we do lobotomies. I guess they really work. But actually all it did was cause them to be like non-functional. They thought they were curing them, you know. Anyway, the point is the unconscious, that, that was one of Freud's big ideas. Also Freud's other idea was psychic Conflict, not psychics like they tell the future, like Sylvia Brown. We're not talking about that, okay? Talking about she's a fraud anyway. Don't, I, but so, what it, we're talking about psychic conflict, meaning psychological conflict, is a big part of what makes us up. Okay, so Freud basically saw that there are three parts to the personality. 
Okay? He said there's what's called your instinctual part. He called that the id. These all have terms. You don't have to know all of these terms. Okay? The id was the instinctual part. Okay? Your desires, your dreams, everything that you want. Okay? Then you have something called the ego, which nowadays we're familiar with as someone's egotistical. It means that they think that they're all that. Right? We're not talking about that, though. The ego is the self. And the ego is partially conscious. The id is mostly buried inside of you, okay? The ego is who you think you are, okay? Who you think you are. The id is just your instinctual desires, okay? You're all of the desires inside you that are just bubbling, okay? Your ego is the self. And the self is constantly at war, according to Freud, with the in- instincts. Because like, I don't really want to kill my brother, like literally, do I? But yeah, I that, that type of thing. Inside you, when you get angry, you're like, I actually want to kill that person. Maybe, right? But the ego says, no, 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 no. You can't, you can't be, you're not a murderer. I mean, how could you say that? So the ego is going to push back against these instinctual desires. If you were just a wild animal, you wouldn't have necessarily something to moderate that part of you, right? And then you have something that Freud called the super ego. Sounds really exciting. Sounds like Superman, right? Superego, which is your feelings of your conscience, not conscious, conscience, or your, let's say your, what, what, it's another word we can use besides your conscience, let's say your feelings of guilt, your feelings of, your you moral. know, your morals, yeah. Let's, like, your, your sense of conscience, um, your sense of guilt, and that, he says, that mainly comes from education, right? You learn what's wrong to feel, I shouldn't really feel like that. So all of these different things, the self, you know, you want to achieve things, you want to accomplish things, you want to do things, you want to be proud of yourself, you have your instinctual desires, and you have your sense of morals and what's right and wrong inside of you, like the voice inside your head that says, don't do this, it's not right, you know, you really shouldn't do that. These are, the con- these are in conflict, according to Freud. And almost everything that we do are... Uh, you know, is a product of some kind of a conflict or some kind of a, a, a negotiation between these different things that we don't even realize is going on, okay? We don't even realize that this stuff is going on inside of us. We barely experience it except for some of the ego and superego that we, we know we feel guilty about doing a certain thing or we know that we really want to do something, but we don't even, uh, you know, we don't know the full extent of everything that's going on underneath the surface is what Freud said. Yes? The ego is like your sense of self. Like, who am I? What are my goals? Uh, what do I want to accomplish? What kind of a person am I? Um, all the things that you think about yourself that you know that you want from the world, that you know you want to accomplish. Like, you're here at Sam. What do you want to accomplish? What are your goals? What is it, you know, uh, what, what do you want to do with your future? All of that is in your ego, meaning it's the self. It's your sense of self that's, that it, you're aware of. M- not that you're aware of all of it, because there are aspects you might not be. Like, Freud made it like a... The, the psyche, the mind is like a, it's like an ocean. I'm a terrible artist, sorry. And, under, and it's like an iceberg, okay? And, under, and, you, and you know when you see an iceberg, most of the iceberg is underneath the water, right? You only see the little tip of the iceberg. That's why we say the tip, it's only the tip of the iceberg. You have a, say, a saying like that in English, right? So I said, this is actually all that you see of the really the huge iceberg underneath that is who you are. That's what Freud would say. And he said, we can explain everything that's this. We can explain dreams like this. We can explain psychological problems. What happens to psychological problem? A person becomes overly possessed by guilt. 
Okay, a person becomes overly anxious because they have so many desires pushing at them that they don't know what to do, that they feel they're out of control and they become anxious. Okay, a person feels that their super ego, their conscience is crushing them, they become, let's say, depressed or whatever it is. Right? I'm just making that up. That isn't necessarily how we would explain those specific disorders. But the idea is that the, when, these, when this whole family of, of forces in the personality is out of order with each other, Okay, then you get psychological problems according to Freud. Now, one of the interesting things that, and we're not going to go into all the details, one of the things that made Freud more controversial than this, this wasn't as controversial. People don't like this because you can't scientifically study it. It's very hard to scientifically study it, so they don't like it. But there's another thing that Freud talked about, and he talked about the role of specifically sexual desires and things like that in people's development. And he thought that that was really the core of so much of your personality development that it was like the dominant thing, even in young childhood, that discovering your body and the desire for intimacy is such a part of what, what it means to develop psychologically. And that made him a little bit unpopular. People didn't like that so much. It was, a too, it was too much of an emphasis on sexuality. So they didn't like that aspect of what Freud said so much. But I think that actually Chazal were much more uh, sympathetic to that. But in the society, in, 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 in modern society, especially Christian society, uh, they didn't like that emphasis so much. That seemed like, a, like, oh, Freud is a pervert. Why is he talking so much about all this? You know, they didn't like that. But the reality is that, uh, especially in our tradition, especially in Chazal, they talk about the role of the instincts, what he would call the id, in really driving a person and how they develop and being a source of motivation for a person. So I don't think that it's, as incon- it's really out of step with Judaism, but some people don't like it. And they also don't like the fact that, well, how can you tell all these things are not conscious? How do you know there's unconscious stuff going on? You can't measure it. You can't determine. How do you know that that's what causes the person to become depressed or anxious or to develop different psychological disorders because they have a conflict between their id and their superego and the superego is fighting against and the ego and the ego has to withdraw from the id, from super all these things. How do you know that all that stuff is going on? It's very, you can't put it under a microscope and see it. It's all happening in the mind. So because of that, people did not, um, later people either modified the theories of Freud to take out some of the overtly, like what they called the you know, overly sexual stuff, or they, they kind of gave maybe the ego a little bit more of a role than the, uncon- than the, than the id. And they modified some of his ideas. But basically this is his uh, map, his roadmap, that you have three different forces, instincts, a sense of ego, which is the you, the you that you're aware of, the you that you want, that you, you know, that, that drives you, that you, that when you think, when you plan, when you, when you in, interact with people in the world, the self that you experience, and then you have the super ego, which is that little angel that, per, you know, perches on your, and, and that little voice in your head that says, you know, this is not good, this is good, this is, you shouldn't do this, you should do that. Uh, whatever you've internalized, and that, of course, comes from education and from what you've been taught is right and wrong, right? Mostly. Um, this is Freud's basic map of the personality. And again, what you do, even famously a Freudian slip. Everybody's probably heard of that, right? When somebody says something by accident, they call it a Freudian slip. They said something that they didn't mean to say. And you say, oh, but the truth comes out in a Freudian slip sometimes. You accidentally say something that really you did mean it. But they say, no, 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 I didn't mean that. I meant something else, right? So but one of the things Freud would say was that is actually your unconscious... Just got to 
you got, you know, just hijacked for a second, your ego got hijacked by your unconscious and got a chance to say something that really deep down you wanted to say, but you might not have even been willing to admit to yourself that you wanted to say that, but you did, okay? That's one of the things you would say. Or in dreams, you see an expression of all kinds of things going on beneath the surface in your psyche that you might not even be aware of in your conscious life. Yes? Yeah, so sometimes he would say that sometimes, it might not always be the case, but sometimes what we say in the moments that are raw or when we have less inhibitions, let's say, when a person, let's say, un- like drank a little bit, a uh, few cups of, uh, uh, too few uh, not, not, uh, not uh, drinks of wine, not, not, not here, not of course, somebody out, out somewhere else who does it, that they have lower inhibitions for whatever reason. Okay, or sometimes I'll give another example that could happen to you that you're overtired. When a person actually is lacking sleep, a lot of times their inhibitions are lowered. They almost have a feeling like what it is to be under the influence of uh, uh, other substances when they're over, really overtired. That's why it's dangerous to drive and operate machinery and stuff like that when you're, when you're very tired. So the same thing. What? In, oh, inhibitions. Like your feeling of like what's appropriate or not appropriate to say. Like you've probably seen a person... You, this would never happen to, of course, but you've probably seen a person who drank a little bit too much and they start saying things that, you know, maybe were not, not appropriate. Inhibitions is when you feel, I, I can't say that. I might think it, but I can't say it. So, so, yeah, so when your inhibitions are lowered, when you, whenever you're in a situation where your, your guard is down, sometimes you'll end up saying or doing things that might show how you really feel, but without your intending it. And this is one of the things that, that he talked about. But when we understand the map of the personality, according to him, so then we understand how you could, uh, how we can explain human behavior and human reactions by referencing not just what they think their motivation is all the time, and not just what they think is the reason that they're doing something, but there could be all kinds of calculations and negotiations going on between different parts of their personality that they don't even realize. Okay? That's what he said. And that, chidush, is uh, probably the main thing that he added to our understanding. Now, what does that relate to? We're going to get into a bunch of examples from the Torah that apply his ideas to real-life situations, and then you're going to see how much it applies to your life, too. Because one of the things that he said that is probably one of the most... practical things you can know about psychology is he introduced the idea that's called defense mechanisms, okay? Now, you've probably heard that term, or you may have heard that term uh, in the, over the course of your life, but a lot of his ideas became like part of our regular way of speaking, okay? Defense mechanisms are things that we do to avoid, remember, He's saying that there are parts of us that we don't like so much about ourselves. Our, our ego, our sense of self doesn't want to accept that we have certain desires or certain feelings like that you really are, when you feel anger, that you really would want to kill somebody. We don't want to think that we would, we would think that way, okay? So defense mechanisms are basically things that we do when, when a feeling comes up that we don't want to believe we really have it. So we try to push it away. And defense mechanisms take all kinds of forms. The most common one is one that you all have experienced, which is called denial. Okay? Denial just means you refuse to accept it. You refuse to accept that this is a feeling that you have. Okay? If I ask you, you'll say no. You'll even say no to yourself. That no, I don't have this feeling. Okay? Do we have... 
an example? Do we have examples from the Torah of people who were in denial about how they really felt? Who can and 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 what was their what was their underlying uh, motivation in reality? Right? What who what kind of denial examples do we have? I can think of two really good ones actually. Yeah. One of the brothers, someone was alive, and then, like, the dad is like... Oh, he didn't want to believe it. Yeah, that's almost the opposite, because there he really wanted to believe it, but he felt like, I can't, I, I can't imagine that it's true, right? I'll give you an example, the opposite, same story, same story, okay? But how about, yeah? Oh, very good. Oh, so that comes to another one that we call rationalization. We're going to get to that in a like second. making yourself believe that what you're doing is Exactly. Right so that's, that's more sophisticated, right? Because you're already coming up with a whole reason why what you're doing. Rationalizing is a, is, a, is a more sophisticated. You're coming up with a reason why it's right, right? You're actually right. But I'll give you an example of somebody in pure denial. Yaakov, again, back to that story. Same person, same story, but different part of the story. Yaakov didn't believe even before that didn't believe his sons would ever do what they did right so he was like favoring Yosef and he was showering him with all kinds of presents and he said they'll never do anything that crazy they can't really be that jealous they can't really be that mean that they would try to kill him or that they would he didn't believe him okay that's called denial there's another example of a, a fast that we just had, the Tzom Gedalia. Just a few weeks ago, we had Tzom Gedalia. What happened with Tzom Gedalia? They told Gedalia, people want to kill you. He said, no, they don't. I don't believe that anybody wants to kill me. It's denied. Okay? When we deny what's really going on. So denial happens within us too. Denial is, I don't really feel that way. I don't really think that way. That can't really be me. We don't just have denial about things in other people. We have it in ourselves. Rationalization is what you mentioned. The brothers rationalize. Like right yeah, I'll give you another example. Haman is the best rationalizer ever in Tanakh. Why? Because he says Good, what? he wants to. He wants to kill Mordechai because Mordechai insulted him. But you know what? Killing somebody because they insulted you makes you look pretty pathetic. It's, it's pretty pathetic. He doesn't even want to admit that he's going to go kill somebody just because he, that, that person insulted him. Because that, that's pathetic. So what does, what does Haman... He comes up with a whole philosophy that the Jewish people are a bad element. They don't listen to the king. They don't observe the laws. It's not good for the kingdom to have Jews here. And of course, Mordechai is one of the Jews, so I get rid of him too. But he comes up with a whole elaborate story why we should get rid of the Jews in order to get rid of Mordechai, right? That's called rationalizing or rationalization, really technically it's called. Okay, I could think of another one. Does anybody remember somebody named Korach? Yeah, yeah. What was Korach's motivate? What did Korach want? He wanted power, he wanted to be the head, he wanted to be the Kohen. He didn't like that Moshe Rabbeinu was telling everybody what to do. Right? What did he say his reasoning was? Does anybody remember? I'm doing this for the people. 
the people, it's not fair. Why can't everybody be a Kohen? Why can't everybody have equal access? Why are some people in telling others what to do and some people not? He made it sound like I have a cause. I have a, I have a philosophy. I have a, I have a, it's, it's about principle. It's not, it's not about me. That's called rationalization, especially if you really believed it. Right? Sometimes it's called baloney. You're telling somebody else. Telling somebody else's story, you don't even believe it. When you start to believe your own reasoning, it's rationalization. I'm really only doing this for the good of the people. I'm not doing it for my own benefit. I'm really only doing it for the good of Persia, according to Haman. It's not just for me. If you really believe your own baloney, then it becomes a defense mechanism. If you are... Uh, if you don't actually believe it, so then you're just a uh, then you're just a manipulator of other people, right? But if you're fooling yourself about your own feelings about things, that is called a defense mechanism. You don't want to believe your ego, your sense of self can tolerate that you really want power that much, or in Haman's case, can tolerate that you really want to kill somebody because they insulted you. That would make you feel extremely pathetic. So therefore, you have to say that there's a whole reason that Jews are not good for the kingdom and all. Yes. What's your name again? Remind me. Serena. Serena. Okay. Yeah. He didn't want to go. Right. That's that's the type of. Yeah, so that's a type of denial even of, rea- of external reality. A person could be in denial about external reality. In psychology, usually we're talking about the denial of inner reality, right? Like meaning your own feelings you can't even accept. You can't even accept them, so you, you make up a reason why you're doing something. I bet people have all done that at some point, right? They might really want to show off, but they pretend that, no, no, I'm just doing this because it's for the sake of honoring Shabbat. I'm wearing this really fancy clothes. You know, but really they want to show off, let's say. I'm just giving an example. Now, another example of a defense mechanism, also very, very common, very common, and you might hear this, you might have all heard this, and you can always tell me if you've heard it. It's, I'm interested to hear what you've heard. There's something called a projection. Has anybody heard of that? Yeah. I was like, oh, so that's a projection. Right? People. Right. Like if you have a problem Right. You don't like someone, so you're like, they don't like me. But it's not true. It's you that don't like them. But you don't want to admit that. That's actually so funny. Right? So you're like, they don't like me. What makes you think they don't like you? Right? It's right, because you you feel stupid, or you feel like, I can't really explain why I don't like them. Or maybe it's because you're jealous, or maybe it's because of a reason that you don't want to accept it about yourself. So you project. I'll give you what I love this example from the Torah. It is the best example. I hope you'll remember it forever and ever and ever. Hey, guys, don't, don't look at your phone. Look up here. You're supposed to take away your phone. There's a basket bag. That's why you come late. Now I get the trip. Okay. Here. Projection from the Torah. I'll tell you a perfect example. The Maraglim. Everyone remembers the Maraglim, right? Yeah. They're not our favorite bunch of guys, okay? They went spying in Israel. They came back with a report. And what did they say? They said that the people in Israel, okay, they were trying to scare everybody. The people in Eretz Israel are giants, right? And they said, When we looked at them, we felt like grasshoppers. Okay? That's what they said. But then they said, And that's exactly what they thought about us too. They thought we were grasshoppers. 
The, the Meraglim said that the giant people in Israel saw them as grasshoppers. How would they know that? Could they know that? Did they no, talk to those giants and interview them and say, excuse me, sir, what do you think of us? Like, you know, they, they didn't ask, right? So, so where are they getting that from? They're all minds, right? They're projecting their feeling inadequate and small. They're saying, obviously, that guy thinks that I'm inadequate and small. But really, that's not true. It's really that you're feeling that way. But you don't want to admit that you're feeling that way. So you say, that person's looking at me like they think I'm inadequate and small. I could tell. You can't really tell. You can't really tell. But you're feeling inadequate and small, but you don't want to admit that you're feeling inadequate and small, that it's coming from you. So what do you do? You change your reality with projection. Like, you think, like, oh, they think they're mad at me, they're mad at me, and then you keep saying me, and you keep... You believe it. And then they actually will be mad at you. Exactly, because you start interacting with them as if they are, right? And you end up causing yourself uh, all kinds of problems because you're living as if it's real. That's the problem with defense mechanisms, okay? Now we have... Um, I don't want to miss any of them. So I made a list for myself. Okay. Now, an interesting, there are two very interesting ones. They're a little bit more sophisticated ones. Okay. There's one that is called displacement. Okay. So these are all, again, ways that we are able to avoid dealing with how we're really feeling. Okay. When that id and that ego and that superego come into conflict, according to Freud, and therefore we need to find a way to deal with, uh, this can't be me. Okay? Another thing is called displacement. Now, displacement means I'm really angry at you, but I don't want to be angry at you. I, I, can't, I can't be angry at you. So I'm going to go kick the dog. Right? You take it out on somebody else. That's what we say. say what's reflection? Right? What? What's reflection? Isn't that No, no. It's called displacement. This is a term that they use. Okay? That means that I am upset. Like, you'll hear, you hear people say that all the time, right? Oh, this person has a bad, had a fight with their spouse and they came to the office and took it out on everybody else. Or they had a bad day at the office and, they, and in the office they can't do anything because they have to behave nicely and they have to get along with everyone and they can't yell and scream and they have to do that. They don't want to lose their job and they have to be professional. But then they come home and they let loose on everybody in their family and take out all their anger and frustration on them, right? We hear that happens all the time, right? Doesn't it happen? Yeah. It happens to everybody. You have a bad day. When you're with the people that you have to behave around, you have to behave. But then when you get into a situation where you can let yourself be, you'll take out the anger and the frustration on everybody around you, even though they don't deserve it. That's called displacement, again, because you can't deal with those feelings inside. You don't even necessarily know why you're in such a bad mood with everybody around you, right? You come home and you're just in a bad mood and you just have a short temper and you just can't hear anybody, you can't see anybody, you can't get along. And you don't even realize that it's because you had a bad day in the, at work or whatever, and you are, uh, and you're just trying to deal with that now. By, by you, you, you felt powerless to be able to deal with it in the real situation. Instead of saying, "Wow, I'm, I have all these feelings, and I'm just powerless, and I'm such a loser. I can't do anything about my feelings." Instead, you go into a situation where you can express the feelings and you say, "No, I'm angry because he's annoying me, and I'm angry because she did this." But it's not really the reason. It's just that those are soft targets that you can, you can express your emotions. And in the real situation, you couldn't express your emotions for whatever reason. So you end up transferring it onto somebody else. Now, there's an interesting couple of stories like that in Tanakh. There's a famous story of David HaMelech that you, we, we know if you've learned the stories of David HaMelech, that David HaMelech was being pursued and chased by Shaul for a long time. Shaul wanted to kill him a couple of years. 
He was on the run, and one time it happened to be that, Sh- that David and his guys were hiding in a cave, and that exact cave, Shaul decided to go in to use the bathroom. Because, oh, you know, that's a, Yeah, yeah. And so all the guys, like David's men, always wanted to just kill Shaul and end it already. They're like, come on. Just kill him already. We have a chance to kill him. He's trying to kill you. Isn't it a rule? Pikuach nefesh. If somebody's trying to kill you, you're allowed to kill them. Right? So why don't we just kill them? Kill him already. And David refused to do it. He said, absolutely not. We're never going to kill him. We're not going to do it. And uh, because he is the chosen one of Hashem. And even though I'm going to be the king eventually, we can't kill him. But what did David do? Does anybody remember this story? What David did? He cut a piece of his clothing off because obviously he took his, like they used to wear cloaks and they would go to the bathroom. He would go, the king went into the cave to go to the bathroom because he's not going to like disrobe in front of everybody. So he goes into private. He takes off the cloak. David sees the cloak there. He cut a piece off of it. And later on he said to Shaul, look, I cut your cloak. You see how close I was. I could have killed you, but I didn't do it. So you see that I don't intend to hurt you. He was trying to show Shaul, I don't intend to hurt you. But it says that he felt very bad about it afterwards. It says in the Tanakh, it says in the Tanakh, David really was upset with himself that he did that, that he cut the cloak. Why do you think so? What did cutting the cloak mean to David, actually? That he was gonna, at one point, he was actually thinking about it. Yeah, he was taking his anger towards Shaul. He was showing his anger towards Shaul by cutting the cloak. Like, I wish I could slit your throat, but I'm going to cut the cloak instead. Meaning he let himself express that bad... He saw that he had actually the anger at Shaul. That's why he felt bad about it. Because he was trying to say, no, no, I'm so principled, I would never touch Shaul, I respect Shaul, and even though he's chasing me, I'm not going to do anything. But the reality was that when he did that action, he felt in himself, he realized it was a displacement of real anger and hatred for Shaul, that he felt bad that he had that. See, so that's something, that kind of a displacement can happen. There's another example of that. Sometimes a feeling we have towards ourselves, we can end up directly, like if you're angry at yourself, you can also take it out on other people, another type of displacement. And there's a story about that in the Tanakh too. It's a story that we don't like to teach kids because it's a very unsavory story. But it's a story of Amnon and Tamar, not Yudan Tamar, but Amnon and Tamar, where Amnon basically rapes, his half-sister or his stepsister. Huh? No, no, that's about Sheva. This is the one where Amnon, the son of David, is like madly obsessed with Tamar, who, according to some, wasn't really related to him, but they were like stepbrother, stepsister, whatever. He was obsessed with her. And then his friend gives him this really great advice to basically get her alone with him and then try to take advantage of her and impose himself, force himself on her. And he does that. It's a terrible story, but after he forces himself on her, it's very interesting, he hates her. It says he absolutely hated her, and he kicked her out of the room, and he said he hated her more than he ever loved her. Even though he was obsessed with her for so long, and he was madly in love with her, his, hate, his love transformed into hatred, and he hated her more than he loved her, meaning he hated her like even more than he had ever loved her. And the question is, why does he hate her? Why did he hate her so much? Who did he really... Because he really hated himself. I'm so disgusting. Look what I did. Right? What a disgusting person I am. I'm so angry at myself. My super ego, like we said, my, his super ego was beating him so badly for doing that and he was feeling so much guilt that instead of, having, instead of facing it and saying, yeah, I did something wrong, I need to do Teshuvah or whatever, he displaced his anger onto her. And he became, and he, and he hated her instead of hating himself because he couldn't tolerate to hate himself. 
His ego couldn't manage hating himself. So he had to hate uh, somebody else. But I thought just, who you are. That's hmm? what yeah. Really, Meaning, like yeah, my sense of self. Like, I can't tolerate that. I, I can't tolerate hating myself that much. I can't accept that I'm such a bad person. I hate her. She's bad. She. Oh, you're talking about Yehuda? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the end, he ends up with her, right? In the beginning, his sons are dying and he assumes that it's her fault, right? That's true. Now, that is, uh, that, those are examples of displacement. And last one, um, and this is really interesting, okay? And this one is really interesting, maybe, is called, it has the most complicated name. That doesn't sound anything like what it is, Okay. But it's a well-known concept in psychology. It's called a reaction formation. Very funny thing. Reaction formation is I experience exactly the opposite of what I really feel. Okay? The opposite of what I really feel. For example, a lot of times, okay, just to use a very mundane example, not a very holy example, a mundane example, a lot of times the politicians who are the most against gay people, it turns out they're gay. Did you ever notice? A lot of times in the news, this, this politician was campaigning against, the, against gay marriage, against, and then all of a sudden it turns out secretly they were gay the whole time. Or this priest was like, pre, you know, condemning all the gay people, and it turns out they're gay. What's happening? The person can't accept who they really are inside, what's really going on inside, so they, they show the exact opposite of what they really feel. They sh- they, it's a way of denying what's really going on inside that they go to the opposite. They don't project it on somebody else or onto another thing. Like, projection is where you say, no, the other person is, is the one who's bad, not me. They're, or or displacement, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to direct the feeling on some, somebody, something or somebody else. Reaction formation is that you are actually saying and doing the opposite of what you really feel. You actually love a certain thing, you act like you hate it. Okay. Like, uh, let's say, um, I don't know, uh, a, a guy who feels that they're not macho enough. You know, they feel like they are too feminine. So they'll try to be super macho to make up for it. No, I'm super macho. I never cry at sad movies and I have no, I'm not sentimental and I'm a tough guy. You know, deep down inside, they might be the most sensitive, fragile, feminine person. They probably are, but they have to make up for it. No, I'm a tough guy. That's, that's reaction formation. There's an interesting person, a character in Tanakh, Named Achav. He was one of the bad kings. One of the bad kings of Israel. And if you learn Sefer Melachim, you would learn about him. But he tried to fight against all the Nevi'im of Hashem. All the prophets of Hashem was fighting against them. And the rabbis say that he put signs all over the place that said, I hate Hashem. I want nothing to do with Hashem. But the reality was that he ended up being really influenced by Eliyahu Navi. And having a relationship with Eliyahu and Avi. And he was very conflicted. Part of him really wanted to follow Hashem. When Eliyahu showed him through certain miraculous things that Hashem was really the true God, he ran home and told his wife, oh my God, you're not going to believe it. Hashem is the true God. And then she said, what are you talking about? Shut up, man. You're crazy. Right? But he himself, what does it show a lot of times when you're pushing so much? Who has to go out and write... I don't believe in Hashem on every wall and I hate Hashem. Well, why, why would you do that? You would only do that. You're trying to convince yourself. Exactly. You're trying to convince yourself. 
Right? We have, there's, a, there's a scene in Shakespeare to go from Kodesh uh, Lechol. Lavdil ben Kodesh Lechol. Scene in Shakespeare. It's very famous where they're watching a play and in the play, the person that they're watching is making a declaration of love of, for this other person and, and, uh, and the lady who's watching the play says, Methinks the lady doth protest too much. This is a very famous line from, from Shakespeare. The, the, and it, be, it became an English phrase, basically. When somebody is protesting too much that they love somebody so much, a lot of times it's because they're trying to convince themselves and really they hate them. Or vice versa, they're saying they hate them. Like, boys will say, I hate girls. You know, like, what, like boys in elementary school, oh, I hate girls, they're so gross. Uh, you know? Or girls will say, oh, I don't want anything to do with boys, they're so gross and they have cooties and all. Right? But really, that may not be the case. But they're saying that because they're trying to deny what's really going on, they go to the opposite. And they might even feel that. They might even convince themselves that, they, that the boys are have cooties. Okay? So that's, that's called a reaction formation. And that's the last, really, of the real defense mechanisms. Um, there's one more that's called a defense mechanism. It's a little bit different. We talked about it before. Um, actually, one more example of reaction formation might be, actually, in this week's parasha, which is chava with the tree. Hashem tells them not to eat from the tree. And, it, and Chava saw the tree was very desirable. But what does she say to the Nachash? She says to the snake, Hashem says, don't eat from the tree and don't even touch it. Right? Meaning she went to an extreme saying, we want nothing. It's a bad tree. It's a bad tree. But really, she looked at the tree. It was a beautiful tree. It looked so good. But what did she do to deny it? She said, it's a bad tree. We can't even touch it. There was no rule that you couldn't touch it. Yeah, they were allowed to touch it, but the point was that she was trying to make it like it has cooties. We don't want anything to do with the tree. It's a bad tree. When reality, deep down, maybe she really was tempted to want to have this, something from the tree. But to, in order to show the opposite, she acted the opposite. Okay? Last but not least, and I know the class is over technically, it's called sublimation. We actually talked about it in the first class, but we didn't use this term. Sublimation is when I have a desire and I channel it into something good. Working out. Yeah. That would be, that would be one. Or a person could, let's say a person likes blood. They have a very aggressive side. They become a surgeon. They get to cut people open, but they're doing something good. Or they become a shochet and they slaughter animals and something acceptable, right? Or a person likes uh, people likes attention. They love attention. They're not going to say, oh, I love attention. What do they do? They uh, become uh, an actor or they become, uh, they become a stand-up comedian. I remember a psychologist once saying, every time I see a stand-up comedian, I see a little child trying to please their parents, meaning like they want the attention so much they need to get up there and everyone laugh at them and, and love them and all that. There's, there's a, the, the person takes a desire that they have and they sublimate it. Are they aware necessarily of that deep down desire that they really are desperate to have attention? They might not be aware of it at all, right? They, it's transformed in them, sublimated into something that could be constructive. So that's actually a pretty healthy, right? That's like a, one of the healthiest of the defense mechanisms because it would be even healthier if they were aware of their deep down desires and then they decided to sublimate them because then they're actually in control consciously of what they're doing. But at least the result of sublimation is much better than the result of a lot of these others which disconnect you from what you're really feeling and sometimes can even lead you to make your situation worse because you're out of touch with the reality of what's going on inside you. So one of the things that Freud's therapy does is help a person become aware of what is really going on inside them, what their feelings really are, 
once they know them, there's nothing to be afraid of if you have a desire or a, a thought or a feeling that is, you know, is stronger or different than what you expected. You come to terms with it, you accept it, and then you find ways to, to integrate it into your personality. But when your personality is broken up into different parts that are warring with each other because you can't accept certain parts of yourself, what's going on inside your heart, so then what ends up happening is you have a, 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 a whole bunch of these in place of self-awareness. And that's, that is our class for today. I think that's a super interesting. Don't start calling each other out. Oh, you're projecting. You're the, you know. Uh, but, you know, that's your homework. No, I'm just kidding. But find, find your own defense mechanism for, for homework and not, not uh, each other's. Okay.